This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 67. So let me tell you a little bit about our work model and how it's different. We actually call it Jazz Remix is the name for it. And we're allowing our teams to determine when it makes sense to come in. And we have a set of principles that this work model is built on. So while people are coming in two to three days a week, we don't have a prescribed number of days. We're working on principles around individuals can do their individual work remotely. And we believe that that can be done. We believe that teams will figure out how much and when they need to get together for that collaboration and connectivity. We do believe that in-person connections matter. We aren't 100% remote, but we also believe that community culture can be created both virtually and in person. How does your operating culture impact your employee experience? What are the best ways to co-create your culture using data and the voice of your team members? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Heidi Mana. Heidi is the Chief People Officer at Jazz Pharmaceuticals, a role that she's held since 2018. And in her role as Chief People Officer, Heidi oversees the HR function as well as internal communications for the company. And as you will soon hear, she has been instrumental in building Jazz's progressive, employee-focused future-of-work model called Jazz Remix. Prior to joining Jazz, Heidi served as the Vice President for Human Resources at the Campbell Soup Company, where she worked for over eight years. And before that, she held various leadership roles during her time at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Heidi is a purpose-driven leader who is passionate about unlocking the potential of people and redefining the future of work. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Heidi, and I know you will too, as we discussed her advice to candidates on how to assess in the interview process if an organization values HR, why a mentor's direct and honest feedback was a turning point in her career, how your operating culture impacts your employee experience, why they've relied on principals and team leaders' judgment in developing their future work model, Jazz Remix and how she engaged and collaborated with the senior leadership team to gain alignment and ownership for Jazz Remix and much, much more. Heidi, welcome to Future of HR podcast. How are you? GP, thank you so much. I am well and absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you on the podcast. You've been a hard get. We've been trying to have you in the podcast for many moons, oh. so it's exciting to have I you today. I am glad our schedules finally worked out to do this, and I'm excited about the, the topics that we're going to cover. We are too, and let's get started. So before becoming CHRO at Jazz Pharmaceuticals, you spent most of your career at two great companies, Campbell Soup and Bristol-Myers Squibb. What did you learn from working at these organizations, and what has helped you become a successful CHRO at Jazz? Yeah. I have been very fortunate to work at, as you said, two great companies. These were pretty large, mature companies. And I think with that comes a lot of expertise and maturity in the way that these companies are run. And I also stayed at them for a long period of time. When I think back of what that has done for me and how it's prepared me to be a chief people officer, 
I think about three things. One is being able to see multiple business cycles, right? Every company has high growth periods and companies have lower growth periods. I always kid. And unfortunately for me, I've often worked in low growth periods of companies. What that teaches you is financial stewardship. And I think that's incredibly important in a CPO role, really understanding where the money goes, how the company decides to invest it. How do you draw out efficiency in other areas? And that's certainly something in a company where I am now that is a 20-year-old company that's had incredible growth. And we're still growing, but having to make pretty tough decisions on where we allocate our money making sure that we get to patients first and how do we scale and live into that. That's helped prepare me. The second thing is just this notion of business acumen. And when I think about the different industry experience, pharmaceuticals have a really long life cycle. It can be a decade to take a product to market. And so it's hard to follow that business cycle. And as I've moved to consumer and food, we're all consumers and that's a much faster, right? Really taught me a lot around understanding a P&L, understanding the business and seeing that life cycle in a much faster period. And you certainly bring that learnings to what I'm doing today. And I guess that third thing that I would say is I've had the privilege of working in a lot of really great HR organizations within these companies with great talent. You work around great people and they're always stretching you and you're learning new things from them. And so those networks have been incredible. And there's still networks that I use today all the time. Heidi, I love how you talk about being part of those different business cycles, right? And being there for the long game and be able to understand that, hey, this too shall pass, things will get better. Knowing that's part of how business cycles work, but then how HR can help on each inflection point, whether you're growing or maybe now are contracting. And so what does that mean from the function? And I think it is important that people stay with their companies Sure. And not look for that greener pasture just because, well, hey, we're having a downturn cycle. Like right now, tech is down. Should you leave tech? Maybe not, yeah. because in three or four years, tech may be booming yeah. again, well, right, as AI grows. As you said, every company has a business cycle. There's going to be high growth and lower growth, and you got to learn to navigate and endure it all. And talking about working for great HR organizations, any tips on how do you find that? Like, how do you really know that you're walking into the right situation if you're kind of a next-gen HR person saying, well, I think this is a good HR team, but how do you really know? It's a great question. I often think of when you're meeting with the business, how do they talk about the HR organization as a great indicator around the quality of that organization and vice versa. When you talk to HR individuals, if you're interviewing, asking them the questions of how do they interact with the business? Where are they invited in? How are they impacting and influencing? And if you hear enough signals of things of that people are doing that invoke more than just the core people process, if you will, that's my signal of when I know that you have a strong HR organization with great caliber people. I love that. That's really, really helpful to think about. The other question I wanted to ask you, because you have worked at these great companies and had a really amazing career. I guess if you look back, what is that most significant turning point in your career? Can you point to one? There's probably been many turning points when you've worked as long as I have at this point. But I remember one specific turning point at Bristol Wires, and I think I was there for about 14 years. And I often say I grew up there. There was a point where I was right before that sort of executive level and at that more senior director level. And I was working for a really strong mentor and boss at the time. And I started to notice that some of my peers were getting promoted. And I wasn't. We always take note of that in these big organizations. And I remember sitting down with her and saying, we're just talking about it. And she gave me 
such awesome, but direct and pointed feedback. She basically said to me, when HR leaders or other people talk about you, everybody wants Heidi Matt on their team. You get things done. You're a great collaborator. But the question around you right now with senior leadership is how strategic are you? And I'll tell you at the time, it really hit me like a brick. I remember going through all those emotions of devastated. I thought I had good strategic skills and I was sort of offended. And I can remember, I think I might have even burst into tears and, and said, I have to leave. Clearly, I have to leave. This went on for like maybe 12 hours and I sort of cycled through all the emotions. And then I remember coming back in her office and talking to her. I'm over the emotion. Let's talk about this. And we had such an incredible, powerful, wonderful discussion, which basically said, look, the more senior you get, the more people develop quick impressions, right? It isn't all about the three months of work that you did for someone. And she said, I'm going to coach you if you're showing up in a more operational way. I'll coach you. We'll talk about it. And I'm going to get you a project that's going to put you in front of the CHRO at the time so that you can demonstrate those skills. We did both of those things. Twelve months later, I ended up getting promoted. But it really was about creating the relationship with someone that was going to be truthful with you. And things that you, you have a lot of blind spots. We all think that we're self-aware. And we are to a certain extent. But we also have blind spots. And having those truth tellers in your life and in your career is just incredibly important. That is an amazing story. And thank you for sharing that and being vulnerable where you had a blind spot and, and where you need to improve. I think it's just amazing that you had that truthful feedback because a lot of us are afraid to give that kind of feedback. But as a boss or mentor, what I think they told you, here's the key question on Heidi. And it's a talent thing to say, what's the key question on, that you have to answer for someone to get to that next level? And that strategic one, a lot of times, if you really are operational and getting things done, that's the hard one to get past. So obviously you did that, which is tremendous. But it happens a lot in yeah. HR. We've got to work be you know, to be better and be more strategic as we show up to really have that impact. Yeah, and have those people that are going to, to tell you when you are and when you're not. And to take 12 hours and to be okay and come back and say, look, I was upset. I feel like a gut punch. Yeah. I worked on my resume and I'm res I was almost resigning. And you're like, okay, actually, maybe the feedback is real and I should think about yeah. it. Look, I've often said yeah. I've learned to cycle through emotion fast in this job and in this field. That's a good one. I'll remember that one. Is there any other advice that from mentors have given you that maybe you'd want to share with next generation HR leaders as well? One piece of advice that has really stuck with me, and, and by the way, I'm, I'd step back and say, I have a lot of mentors. And I think I have a lot of people that don't even know that they're mentors to me because I think of it very, very broadly. I think I have a knack for seeing the gifts in people and really just leveraging those. I tap into a lot of people upward, downward. I use sometimes even my direct reports are mentoring me in areas where they're strong and where they're not. And they probably wouldn't even realize they are, but they are. But one piece of advice or mentoring that I got, I had worked for a CHRO now at a big pharmaceutical company. I was early in my career, and one of the things that he used to always ask was, what are you doing to innovate? What are you doing to innovate? And I can remember being like the senior manager. I was like, I'm just running the compensation process. I don't know. Like, how do you innovate? And I probably thought about it a lot, and it stressed me out. But I used to think about, okay, how do you continuously improve things? It started that. And then later in my career, that voice and that question comes up all of the time. And you, in the world that we live in now, innovation and adaptability is even more important. And so I'm constantly thinking about, this isn't about understanding what is the 
best way to do it and the only way to do it. It really is about that notion of continuous improvement and thinking about iteration, improving and continuing to get better and better or do something different to respond to the, the market needs. Yeah, that is great advice and so important in this day and age where everything is changing so much faster. But what I love is that the senior leader to challenge you. I think the best leaders, the best mentors see us differently and see it and have higher expectations for us than we have for ourselves at times. And to say, how do you should be innovating? Like, I want to see more innovation, right? I don't want to see more out of you. And you're like, I'm working as hard as I can, <laughs> right? But then you said, well, maybe I can do more, right? And I think that's what's so cool. We rise those level of expectations that we see with others. Others placed upon us, I guess, the way you say that. So that's terrific. Switching gears a little bit to talk a little more about jazz. And you guys are doing some really cool things. So thank you for talking a little bit more about what you're doing and the company. But I know the employee experience is a pretty big part of being a part of jazz pharmaceuticals. Can you talk a little more about what does employee experience mean to you and, and why does it matter? Yeah, that is two words that are used a lot in our circle, in our field, employee experience. From my lens, the employee experience very much just is whatever someone that's working in your company is simply experiencing. And I think that is analogous to culture, really. Culture is all encompassing. It's whatever sort of impacts or touches an individual. It's what it feels like to work at that company. It could be tangible things. It could be intangible things. When I frame it up and we talk about it in our company, we, t we talk about two things. One, the experience around the culture of our cultural cornerstone. And what do I mean by that? I mean about the enduring things about your culture, your purpose, and why you exist. We are all about patients and providing life-changing medicines or life-saving medicines to patients. So we have a very clear purpose and proposition there that's important to our employees. And we're also about our values what they mean. And those are the things that you want to hold on to and preserve and make sure that you keep them alive and well. There's another element that we talk about, which is the experience around operating culture. Operating culture, I, I just think of it as what it feels like to get work done wherever you are. That could be processes, that could be governance, that could be when you're engaging with people on decisions, what does it feel like? It could be a lot of different things. But those are the holistic things when we think about employee experience. I guess the other piece that I would say it is that jazz, we actually have an aspiration. We talk about making jazz the best experience of your career. We're pretty overt about saying that. And when I think about how can we do that, there's two things. One is what is our value proposition and what can we do that's a little bit different and unique from other companies? We talk about the, that connection to people and patients as one of those things. We talk about creating an environment where you can be your best. We talk about a flexible approach to work and life and how that can be a benefit to employees and that can be a benefit to Jazz as a company. And then we talk about caring for our employees' well-being and value proposition where you can be differentiating. But what also matters is what your employees are telling. What is that experience that they're really having and what is serving them well and what is not serving them well? That was great. I feel a lot to unpack. The first thing I would say that I love about your answer there is that we talk about a lot about the employee experience. You can't have an employee experience without the culture. And that operating experience is really interesting because I always believe cultures around how decisions are made. That's when you really start to see it come to life. It's really, what does it feel like to work here and get things done? Is it easy? Is it bureaucratic? So that's important. But you guys will have a very high bar you're setting. We do. To say that you want to be the best, you say, career experience someone's ever had. 
And so I think going through that was really helpful for us. But I know you guys also have a future work model you talked about. Is that part of being one of the best places to work? Yeah, the proof points of that is our work model. Tell us a little more about what the future work model is all about. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. It is a wonderful example of that flexibility and balance and that proposition that we said we want to be a little bit differentiated. It's an example of being innovative, being personalized a little bit more in the approach that we're taking to the employee experience. And so let me tell you a little bit about our work model and how it's different. We actually call it Jazz Remix is the name for it. It's really an adaptable and dynamic use of our work locations and work schedules to work where and how it makes most sense for the individual and for the business. What does that mean in practical terms is probably a a, a logical question. Now, we're all aware that most companies in a hybrid work model, well, most companies are coming back to work perhaps two to three days in the office. Well, we've chosen not to take that approach. We've chosen to take an approach that is more a little bit based around the principles of what makes sense for a team. And we're allowing our teams to determine when it makes sense to come in. And we have a set of principles that this work model is built on. So while people are coming in two to three days a week, we don't have a prescribed number of days. We're working on principles around individuals can do their individual work remotely. And we believe that that can be done. We believe that teams will figure out how much and when they need to get together for that collaboration and connectivity. We do believe that in-person connections matter. We aren't 100% remote, but we also believe that community culture can be created both virtually and in person. And for us, it works pretty well. We're a pretty distributed workforce. We have West Coast in the United States. We have East Coast. We have people in the UK. We have people in Dublin. And these are all people that are working together. So it's a work model that's actually serving us pretty well. As you talked, it really made me think about part of the debate of how many days in the office or remote, hybrid. It's actually a conversation about being right or wrong. I think a lot of companies approach this like, there's only one approach. It's the right approach. And this is what we should do is if it's got to be three days in the office or it's got to be fully remote. I think the approach you're taking is it's got to be right for you and for Jazz and for your team members. And I think that's what a lot of companies actually miss with this approach. They're trying to find the one best answer and worried about what everyone else is doing versus just saying, what's going to work for our company, our culture, our people? It's a great point because that was very much one of our principles was what is right for us and what is going to best serve us. And by the way, we haven't pretended to have the answers of what that looks like. We've also thought about, look, we're going to try something, a principle-based approach. We're going to learn from it and we're going to iterate and we're going to adapt. I think it's brilliant. And thank you for sharing that. And I think it's brave because I feel like now kind of letting a leader decide and that team when they're going to come in the office is not in vogue as much as maybe it was 12 months ago, right? right? But you also talked a lot about the fact that utilize data and the voice of the team member. Yeah and creating Jazz Remix. Talk about how you found out what they wanted, what your team members wanted, and built that in. Yeah, data in general was incredibly important. And without it, we would have no Jazz Remix. I'll start by saying that. Very early, maybe two to three months into the pandemic, we actually started this dialogue. And it really started with listening. We did a ton around outreach to our employees. And not only to support them through the period that they were going through, But it also was to start to pulse, how do we think this has forever changed the way that our employees 
thought about the future of work. And we knew we knew that there were signals that that was going to be different. And we weren't afraid to ask those questions. What I can tell you is in those early days with data, I did a couple of things. I went out and I asked them what they wanted. We found out at that time very early on, 92% of our employees told us that they preferred to continue remote work even after the pandemic. 60% of our leaders we looked at actually were leading distributed teams. They might have people on the West Coast. They might have people in Dublin. We're distributed in nature anyway. And we also started looking at commute times. We're in big cities and hubs and showing the data that a large majority of our employees had over a 60-minute-a-day commute. Starting to pull that data around both their preferences, desires, the makeup of our workforce and how it worked together was incredibly important. I love that you pulled in the commuting time. It's I think something we forget. I've heard people say, well, we commuted before the pandemic, so what's the big deal? And I'm like, why would you want to go back and give two hours away every day? Or the flexibility for a working mother or father that wants to be able to pick their kids up or take them to school a couple of days a week. Like to just go back just because we did that didn't always feel right to me. Obviously, that's the hardest part in the big cities. Most people are saying, well, I'd love to go in the office. I just don't want to commute for two hours and then pay $40 for it parking. It was huge and a bit eye-opening, I would say. Our CEO, who's a very values-based CEO, very important to the employee experience and the values are incredibly important to him. When I remember showing him this data, he's in Palo Alto, and I think he has like a 10-minute commute. And I showed him in that area the commute of most of the workforce. And I think that was highly influential and important as he thought about the productivity that people were getting, the better life experience they were having with using that commute time for different purposes, both from a work and from a better quality of life spending with their family. Yeah. And what's interesting is a lot of, we had Nick Bloom on the podcast a while back, but I think he talked about, I think it's about 8% that people will say that working from home is like an 8% raise or they would give up 8% of their salary for that. So people value the flexibility, but you also hit on something, Heidi, that I thought was interesting and I wanted to ask you about. I think a lot of CPOs struggle influencing their senior team. The CEOs or the senior team maybe want everyone back in the office for a variety of reasons. But you, I know, have a great CEO who's really had a different perspective, but maybe talk about how did you get people aligned on this flexible workforce, wow. workplace? Because probably not everybody in the senior team yeah. was like, this is the right approach. Yeah. It is probably one of the most challenging aspects. A hybrid work is sort of the strong sentiments of senior leadership teams. And by the way, my CEO would never have chosen this work model. He is incredibly extroverted. He loves nothing more than being in the office surrounded by people in person. We often kid that the reason that we are where we are is the both of us. It was me bringing a lot of data to the table. And it was him being an incredibly employee-centric, adaptable leader. But we also have a management team. This was not a dictatorship of him and I saying, this is where we're going to go. And there was influence. What I would say is, one, I talked about we use data early. And I brought that data in early to the senior leadership team. And we talked about it. That was important for them to get grounded on that. I also started to do some work with them around, I'm going to call it tolerability. We started putting sort of a pendulum. I didn't cut craft out. Hey, what about this precise work model? I started to talk to them about, okay, knowing this, knowing what we've actually accomplished during the pandemic, because we had an incredibly productive period as a company during that pandemic. We were launching products. We acquired a $7 billion company. We had a huge integration. 
we were hitting our drug development milestones, we were incredibly productive. So there was a proof point of this isn't bad for our business. We've actually gotten better at being a better global company. So I started testing the waters of as you think about work models, what's your tolerability as a group and as individuals to think about moving that pendulum a little bit? Gave me great insight around who were going to be my fast adopters and who was going to really get behind something more progressive. It also gave me insight of who was going to struggle a little bit more with this. And then you can customize as you go. Other thing that I will tell you that we did is I talked about the principle-based. As we thought about this, I really got them anchored around a set of principles with this model. And could they buy into it? We talked about individual type of work could be done remote. We buy into that. Offices, how would they be used? They'd be used for that more innovation, connectivity, collaboration, thinking about that culture point. We have to be hold hands and say, we believe culture can be created both virtually and in person. We have to be able to say that flexibility is key to both resiliency, well-being, and helping us to be a more agile global organization. So getting them aligned and coming back to them in a very iterative way was a really important part of bringing them along this journey. That was so insightful. Thank you, Heidi, for sharing a little more about how you did that. I think it sounds like you really had a great change management approach, but also got buy-in so the whole team really could lock hands and arms and say, hey, this is how we're going to do it, and it's going to work well. I'm curious, we've been doing this for a while with Jazz Remix. What have you learned? Any kind of reflections on what's gone well, what you do? Are you still tweaking Jazz Remix, still jazzing it up? Yeah. So we are learning a lot. Learning was really a key part of it. It actually was an interesting change management because you got a lot of people almost wondering, where are we going to take it away? And so I had to clarify what learning meant. I had to sort of say, no, look, the foundation of what this was built on is here to stay. But we do want to be learning and iterating and we're doing something different. And so it'd be silly for us to expect that we didn't have to modify along the way we've learned that we can actually be highly productive and get results through this. And so that's first and foremost, the most important learning. We've learned that we have access to better talent. When we put jobs up now, the candidate inflow that we get because of the flexibility that we provide is amazing. My recruiters will tell me they'll get almost double or triple the amount of of CVs that are coming in. And we're able to hire in locations that we didn't hire in before. So I definitely think we're getting access to better talent. Our turnover rate has gone down pretty dramatically. We're about now 50% the life science industry average. We're 50% below. And year over year, we're trending significantly below where we were before. So I know that this is contributing in a great way. And you mentioned Nick Bloom. He talks about monetizing that cost of what that turnover really is. Certainly has uh, business value. Recently, we did another survey to listen to our employees again, and it was all built around help us understand your experience with Remix compared to your experience before. That direct feedback and contrast, and I'll tell you, it was pretty amazing. 81% of the employees said they see an improvement in their ability to work in a flexible way. 84% feel like they have the right balance of in person and remote. 78% 78% they said they had an overall happiness. 81% said that they see an improvement in the collaboration on global teams. And then 79% told us that they see improvement in their overall satisfaction at working in jazz due to this remix model. So 
you know, the employees are using their voice very loudly to say, this is how we feel about this. Now, JP, I will tell you, that's not to say that there are opportunities. In that survey, we also asked what's not serving us as well and what do we need to adapt? And probably two big themes came out. One was around, it seemed like intact teams were figuring it out, right? That sort of principle-based approach of coming in. But definitely people told us they miss the connectivity more broadly with cross-functional teams. They were craving a little bit more of that connection and belonging. And then the second thing that they told us is, look, the tools and the technology are great, but we need more training. We need more training to understand how to, to improve our digital dexterity. We're leveraging MS Teams and no if you are or not, but there's actually a lot to that form. And there's a lot to, if you use it well, it actually can improve productivity, less meetings, you know, working more asynchronously, using the technology to work in a more collaborative way. So we've been doubling down on those two things of creating more opportunities for when teams come in. Let's make it impactful, value add. Let's figure out how we almost do mixers more cross-functionally and more broadly and get a, a swell of people coming in at the same time. And then how do we also double down on really this digital dexterity and getting people to leverage tools to their benefit more? I think it's such a great case study. Congratulations on all the success. I think those results are impressive. Some of the highest results I've ever heard from a kind of an employee survey asking questions around that. So it seems like people are really satisfied. And then kudos to you for continuing to try to refine, get better about that. I think you've inspired a lot of people with this podcast, thinking about, gosh, how can we do this differently? And really think about that different future work model. So thank you for doing that. My last question for you is, what is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? One word is hard, but for me, it's adaptability. The last five years in general have been the most interesting of my career. And I think it's so much of the world and how the world is evolving. And there is this unpredictable nature of it on one hand. There's also expectations of employees that have just changed dramatically. And there's this notion that everything that you learn, it's not about pulling out your rule book of all the things that I learned and here's how I have to run that play now. How do you critically think through the unknown? And how do you leverage the people around you to adapt and to innovate and to iterate? Because doing what you did before, and that often worked well for senior leaders for many years, I just think we're in a different environment. I think you're right. Adaptability is definitely the future of HR. Heidi, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing the Jazz Remix journey. Amazing to be with you today. JP, my pleasure. I really appreciate having the conversation. Thanks again to Heidi for sharing Jazz's future work model, Jazz Remix, and the key learnings on their journey to co-create their culture with their team members. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe, share a podcast with at least one other person, or even better, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify Podcasts. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with the best of 2023 episode. Yes, you heard that right. The episode that you've been waiting for, the best of episode features the top insights and moments on the future of HR podcast in 2023. This was a fun but challenging episode to put together. Who can you expect to hear from in this best of episode? 
I'm sorry, but I'm not going to ruin the surprise. You'll have to tune in next week to find out if your favorite guest made it. Thanks again to listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.